I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about new opinions, orders, and arguments, and we'll interview the head of Arnold and Porter's Supreme Court practice, Lisa Blatt. The justices have been pretty busy this week, issuing orders and opinions and hearing oral argument in a few highly anticipated cases. But before we get into this, we need to talk about what makes Chief Justice John Roberts lose his cool. (laughs) Just not very many things. (laughs) Uh, Tony Morrow of the National Law Journal uh, wrote an article earlier this week about a snippy exchange between the chief and Justice Breyer that happened last week. So, Tiffany, tell us what grinds John Roberts' gears. (laughs) Yes. So, in the city of Hayes, Kansas, versus vote. Justice Breyer asked the advocate about the trial transcript and about something he couldn't find in the record. And the advocate responded that what he was looking for was not in the record. Um, dun, and this, dun, dun. Yes, this is where Robert got a little upset slash excited about <laughs> Breyer asking this. And he, he said, well, before we start having an extended exchange about something that's not in the record, I would just like to point out that it's not in the record. <laughs> and he compared looking at things outside the record as uh, someone coming in off the street and saying, oh, I know what happened in this case. <laughs> so Breyer pushed back a little bit and said he wanted to know what happened because it could help the court determine whether this is an actual case or controversy that was appropriate for the court to take. And then there was a little back and forth, and Roberts told the advocate to go ahead and answer the question. And then Breyer says, oh, no, you don't have to answer the question. <laughs> but then Roberts says, no, really, feel free to answer the question. But just so you know, I'm going to discount the answer because it's not in the record. <laughs> I feel bad for this advocate. Definitely. I, I don't know if I would know how to respond to an exchange like that, but she did a good job. So tell us about, there was a big order also this week. Yeah, the court issued some orders, including denying the administration's request that adhere a challenge to DACA before the Ninth Circuit heard the case. Under Supreme Court Rule 11, the court notes that it, it will grant cert before judgment only upon a showing that the case is of such imperative public importance as to justify deviation from the normal appellate practice and to require immediate determination in this court. And so while it's pretty rare for the court to grant cert before judgment, I'm a little surprised that it didn't in this case, because if you look historically at uh, what cases the court has done this in, a high number of them are where the government sought cert, and especially cases that involve presidential power. For example, like the um, Youngstown steel seizure case. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure the last time the court granted cert before judgment. Um, I just looked very quickly, and it may be a 2005 case, United States versus Fan Fan, about the sentencing guidelines. The court took this case because it was a companion case to another one that it was deciding. But I didn't do a deep dive to find the answer. So I guess that's a good question for our listeners. If anyone knows the last time the court granted cert before judgment, send us a note and let us know. So the court also granted cert in three cases, one of which is a death penalty case. This is Madison versus Alabama. And the issue is whether a state can execute a prisoner who has no memory of committing the offense due to a mental disability. So this case is brought by the leading anti-death penalty lawyer, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. And this is an organization that, that pushes the evolving standards of decency theory of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. The court also granted New Prime Incorporated versus Oliveira, which is about the Federal Arbitration Act and independent contractors. 
And then finally, they granted Mount Lemmon Fire District versus Guido, which is about the application of the Age Discrimination and Employment Act to political subdivisions as employers. The court also released a few opinions, and now we know what they've been up to because they're highly fractured decisions with a lot of concurrences and dissents. So first up was the Patchak case. Yeah, so um, this was a plurality, and Justice Thomas uh, wrote that decision, and the court held that the Gun Lake Act doesn't violate Article Three of the Constitution, which prohibits Congress from directing the result of pending litigation. So in in 2005, the Secretary of the Interior said that he intended to take certain land into trust for an Indian tribe in Michigan. But before he did so, Petitioner Pacek, in this case, filed a lawsuit that challenged that decision. And in 2014, while that case was pending in the district court, Congress passed the Gun Lake Act, uh, which ratified the Secretary's decision to take that land into trust and directed that any pending or future litigation relating to that land shall be dismissed. So Patchett's action was dismissed, and the court affirmed that decision this week. So Thomas wrote that Congress cannot, consistent with Article Three, usurp a court's power to interpret and apply the law to a case before it, but that it can change the law, which can then be retroactively applied in pending cases, even if it effectively ensures that one side wins. So Roberts, Kennedy, and Gorsuch dissented, and they said it was clear that the Gun Lake Act was passed to dictate the disposition of this single pending case and that that violates Article Three. The court also decided Jennings versus Rodriguez. This is the second time the court has heard this case. Last term, the justices deadlocked 4-4. And then this term, Justice Kagan recused herself after the court heard oral argument when she discovered that she had authorized filings uh, in the case when she was the Solicitor General. So the issue is whether aliens have a right to periodic bond hearings after they have been detained by the government and it has begun removal proceedings. So Alito wrote the majority opinion, which was joined in full by the Chief Justice and Anthony Kennedy, and this reversed the Ninth Circuit's holding that bond hearings are required every six months. Thomas concurred in part, saying that he doesn't think the court has jurisdiction to review this sort of claim, but since the court exercised jurisdiction, he agrees with how the majority disposed of it. And then Gorsuch joined Thomas's concurrence, except as for one footnote. Sotomayor joined one part of the majority opinion, but then she also joined the dissent, which was written by Justice Breyer, also joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, saying that the majority's interpretation likely renders the relevant statute unconstitutional. So it was a bit of a head-scratcher to figure out <laughs> the uh, the vote count in that one. And then finally, the court decided marriage management group and this is a bankruptcy case, and that's all you need to know. Um, it's like reading Greek, and it was probably the most boring thing I've ever read, so we're not going to talk about it. Um, so now we'll turn to arguments the court heard this week. Elizabeth, can you tell us about the arguments you went over to the court to hear? Yeah. So on Monday of this week, the court heard the Janus case. This is the public sector union case, and I went over. It was a packed house. There were protesters outside, and the courtroom was packed. I was in the overflow room for members of the bar, and it was standing room only. So this is the case of Mark Janice, who is an Illinois state employee. He decided not to join the local union, but then he discovered that the state 
was deducting an agency fee from his paycheck that covered the cost of collective bargaining. So a 1977 case called Abood versus Detroit Board of Education upheld these type of agency fees for public sector employees under the theory that the state has a compelling interest in dealing with an exclusive representative and in promoting labor peace. So Abood has been living on borrowed time since 2012 when the court called into question its constitutional validity. And then in 2015, uh, the 2015 term, it seemed that the court was poised to overrule Abood in the Friedrichs case, but then Justice Scalia suddenly passed away and the remaining eight justices deadlocked in the Friedrichs case. That brings us to the Janus case, and it was a hot bench at the oral argument this week. Mr. Janus's lawyer, Bill Messenger, and Solicitor General Noel Francisco shared argument time, and Justices uh, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan came out swinging. They were asking about the free rider problem, stare decisis, and, and how this might impact private sector unions. So on the free rider problem, so this is the, the idea that non-members would get the benefits of the union without having to pay for it, the Solicitor General explained that the federal government doesn't allow unions to charge non-members fees, and yet one in four employees in the federal government still chooses to join the union. And Bill Messenger pointed out that there are 27 right-to-work states where unions remain active without the guaranteed stream of funds from non-members. So regarding stare decisis and the reliance interest, because we're dealing with the court possibly overruling a 40-year-old decision— uh, Messenger pointed out that the collective uh, collective bargaining agreements only last for a few years, so any disruption would be short-lived. And General Francisco put a finer point on it. He said that the current agreements were negotiated, quote, under the shadow of Knox and Harris, which were the 2012 and 2014 cases, suggesting that Abood might be overruled in the near future. Yeah, so everyone knew this was, like, likely going to happen. And had that in mind. Definitely. When they were negotiating Definitely. Their contracts. So when the lawyers for the other side stepped up to the podium, they both tried to paint a picture of how dire it would be if the court overruled Abood. One of the lawyers even suggested that if the justices rule against the unions, they should expect labor unrest throughout the country. So when Bill Messenger got back up for his rebuttal, he pointed out that this idea that agency fees are basically the price employees uh, pay to prevent unions from striking is radical. I mean, this is basically how the mob operates. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not an interest that the court should accept as a reason for infringing the First Amendment rights of public employees like Mr. Janus. So after an hour of oral argument, uh, none of the eight justices who previously ruled on this issue appeared to have changed their minds. But Justice Gorsuch, the likely deciding vote, was noticeably silent. So now we have to wait to see uh, how he might vote. I wonder if this is the first case that he didn't ask a question in. We should look that up. <laughs> uh, it very well might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the court also heard the Microsoft case this week. So this deals with whether the Stored Communications Act, which gives the government the ability to require an email provider to turn over email content if they get a warrant, whether that applies extraterritorially. So in this case, the government got a warrant to require Microsoft to turn over information about an email account associated with drug trafficking. But the issue is that the emails are stored on a server in Ireland. And there's a presumption that U.S. laws apply only in the U.S. So Justice Ginsburg started out by saying, I think the starting point all would agree, is that in 1986, no one ever heard of clouds. This kind of storage didn't exist. And so the justices really seem to struggle with how to apply this statute from the 1980s to modern technology. 
And the government argued that the statute applies generally to classically domestic conduct and that since the crime occurred in the United States and it involves a United States service provider, it doesn't really matter where the information is stored. Some of the justices really seem to think that this is a problem for Congress to solve. And there is some, currently some legislation, um, including the Cloud Act, that is trying to address some of these issues. So this is a really complicated case, and there's definitely not a clear-cut answer. So I'm really looking forward to the decision likely in June. And finally, the court heard Minnesota Voters Alliance versus Mansky, and I went over for the argument in that case as well. And this it deals with the state of Minnesota having a ban on T-shirt and other apparel in polling places that have messages that can be construed as political. So the petitioner here tried to wear a Don't Tread on Me T-shirt and a Please ID Me button when he went to the polls in 2010. And he was initially turned away twice, saying he couldn't enter the polling place uh, with with those messages. This week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments, and uh, at the start, the the lawyer for uh, for Minnesota Voters Alliance he pointed out that you know the state state does have an interest in preventing fraud and intimidation in their elections, but polling places are not pristine retreats from the world, and there's no right to vote free from being bothered. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Anthony Kennedy both expressed concerns about whether the absence of this law would negatively impact the decorum, solemnity, and dignity of polling places. So <laughs> so Justice dignity. Kennedy's uh, dignity jurisprudence meets the, the polling place. But the lawyer for Minnesota Voters Alliance pointed out that there are several other laws on the books that would already prevent disorderly conduct, intimidation, and other disruptive acts. And he also pointed out that Minnesota is in the minority here. There are only nine other states that have similarly restrictive laws, and yet we don't see widespread disruption throughout the other states on on election day with people wearing intimidating T-shirts. So when the lawyer for the state got up to the podium, uh, Justice Sam Alito jumped in with a list of political messages, and he wanted to know which which fell on the right side of uh, of the political line. So he asked a rainbow flag, and the lawyer said yes, unless there's a gay rights issue on the ballot. How about Parkland Strong? Yes, that would be fine. The NRA? No, that would not be fine. The text of the Second Amendment? No, that's too political for the polls. <laughs> that's insane. The text of the First Amendment? Yes, that would be permitted. It's not too political. A, a Colin Kaepernick jersey? Yes, that would be permitted. An All Lives Matter t-shirt? Maybe. That's a hard case. So the lawyer was not able to respond to Alito's final example, which was T-shirts that say, I miss Bill, or conversely, Reagan Bush 84, because Justice Stephen Breyer jumped in uh, saying that, you know, if there's a situation where a voter thinks that he was mistakenly told that his shirt, you know, isn't allowed, that, that he could just bring a lawsuit. But Justice Alito asked, you know, what if a group of voters decided to make a statement about an issue by wearing all white when they go to the polls? Would that be permissible? And the lawyer for the state said, uh, you know, that's not a political insignia, like white clothes are not a political insignia. So that would be permitted. But this response ignores the reality that phrases, images, and colors become associated with, with causes and political messages. I mean, you think of pink and, and it's associated with uh, with breast cancer awareness. Or, you know, at the, the recent Golden Globes when all of the almost all of the actresses wore black to protest sexual harassment and join the Me Too movement. The the gay rights community 
has claimed the rainbow as its symbol. And the Gadsden flag, which was once uh, a symbol of the American Revolution, is today associated with the Tea Party. So at its core, this case comes down to whether the government can prevent Americans from expressing themselves when they simply because they're entering a polling place. And uh, I would point out that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was engaged in a little self-expression today, uh, this week, at the argument uh, because she was wearing one of her signature jabot. Um, so I think the the court, you know, they, they might recognize that Minnesota has good intentions in trying to ensure that voters can cast their votes, uh, their ballots free from intimidation and threats and coercion. But Americans don't need the polls to be these sanitized, safe spaces that are free from any message that could be construed as political. So this uh, will we'll wait for the opinion, which I would guess this will be one that uh, isn't released in tor- until the end of the term. So we recently spoke with Lisa Blatt. She has argued more cases before the Supreme Court than any other woman. Lisa Blatt is the head of Arnold and Porter's appellate and Supreme Court practice and our favorite liberal here at SCOTUS 101. So welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So you've argued 35 cases before the Supreme Court. Which arguments were the most memorable for you? I think the case that was the most memorable was the case where I argued that it was constitutional to search a gas tank at the border. And then, (laughs) yes. And then the other one was um, the adoptive couple versus baby girl, where I represented an adoptive couple um, against the birth dad uh, who was claiming a a privilege based on his Native American blood quantum. Yeah, that was a really um, heart-wrenching case to to follow along. Um, so you've now argued more cases at the Supreme Court than any other woman. Is that right? Yes. How does it feel to be the record holder? Hoping it gets broken um, <laughs> by other women. I think it's good. I just, you know, I think at this point, I argue as many cases as men. And I, you know, I, I enjoy arguing cases. But at this point, I actually think I like brief writing even better. So you've described advocacy as an art and a war, and that you approach cases thinking one side is actually going to die and it's not going to be. Um, so what's shaped your style as an advocate? I mean, that definitely is what I think in every case. It motivates me. What shaped it is, I think, identifying with the client. I feel that I want to be the lawyer that I would want my lawyer to be that f- would feel like you know my problem was their problem and that I was here not to... I'm here not to judge the client, but to channel them and represent them. And, you know, they're only hiring you because they need you. And for them, it it may be life or death, Um, maybe not in the literal sense, but because their rights are at stake or money's at stake or principles at stake. But I think I learned it, I have to say, in a direct answer, as I learned it from being an associate at Williams & Connolly, I do think that that law firm imparted a a military style. That was way (laughs) back in the um, early 90s, so I don't know if it's still like that. But it was sort of like that. Litigation is war. (laughs) I like it. Leave no prisoners. Leave no prisoners. And so it works for me in appellate. I think you can still be um, friendly to people and have a collegial atmosphere, but when it terms of your passion and the energy you bring to a case, that's the way you should treat it. So you worked for, I think, six different SGs uh, when you were in government. So who was your favorite boss? In retrospect, I think it was different at the time. In retrospect, it was clearly Paul Clement. It still is clearly Paul. Um, (laughs) And I think that that's largely for personal reasons. Paul was the only SG I felt comfortable uh, asking to go part-time. Um, for family reasons. And uh, Paul, you know, agreed with gusto, even when others in the office were pretty horrified and didn't think that that was either appropriate. 
Paul just really respected my uh, sort of personal choices and wanting to spend more time with my kids. In terms of other aspects, Seth Waxman, in a lot of ways, was my favorite, um, only because he held my hand before my first argument. And I thought that was really sweet. I know that that's going to sound awful in today's age, but I can't tell you being 31 and really insecure. And he could tell and he held my hand and it was really sweet. That's, that's wonderful. Sweet. So you represent the Washington Redskins in a case challenging their trademarks. And your brief um, for the Redskins in the Slants trademark case at the Supreme Court got a lot of attention. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that brief? Well, I love that brief. Um, I think that, that the Washington Redskins is one of the few clients that sort of has let me be me and not tried to put any <laughs> restraints on me. And in a lot of ways, it may just be that sports mentality of, you know, the best defense is the best offense. And I think that they let me, you know, run against the government in ways that the government deserves that might other people might not have had the energy to do. I do think it was helpful being a woman and using all the government's uh, pornographic and obscene uh, trademarks. Uh, I didn't feel in any way embarrassed by it or restrained by it or that anyone would judge me. So I was the case was the most fun I think I've ever had in a case, only because it was fun making fun of the government's hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. That's great. So you've talked about how your desire to be a mother um, has shaped your career, and it led you to to lead the the life as a trial lawyer and uh, to uh, to get into a government gig. Uh, so how have you balanced motherhood and and your very thriving career? Well, I don't. I guess one of it is I don't really feel I don't don't feel like you can have it all. I'm not one of those people who says <laughs> you can have everything. And if I wanted everything, I would choose my kids. It's it's been very hard to balance. I think if it hadn't been for people like Paul uh, and my law firm, my law firm lets me go part time. I'm part time. They said when I was interviewing that that's not even something they think about as where other law firms were. You could tell they were pretty hostile to the notion of part time. Mm-hmm. And Arnold Porter was like, who cares? You know, that's just not an issue. Um, I try to tell women to look for jobs where they need you more than you need them. So they'll respect your choices. I don't, I don't think I'm a better lawyer because I'm a mother. I just think I'm a better lawyer because my whole life isn't work, that I have perspective. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just don't feel like I would be a complete person if I didn't have my family. Mm-hmm. So, But it is hard to balance. I guess it's easier now because my kids are grown, but it was certainly very hard uh, for the first 15, 16 years. So we hear you can really cut a rug on the dance floor. So what else do you do for fun when you're not winning Supreme Court cases? Well, I hope this doesn't surprise people, but I love kids. Uh, So I love coaching debate. Uh, Did middle school and high school. I just love children. Um, So I love being around children. I'm trying to think of what else I do. I I love music and I love to shop. (laughs) Sounds great. You're in good company here. (laughs) Um, so you clerked for Justice Ginsburg when she was on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience working oh. for her. <laughs> or lack thereof. She was <laughs> she did not need her clerks by her. I think I was her third to last year. And she just had complete and total control over the D.C. Circuit gig. <laughs> um, so I when I toasted her for I don't know what anniversary it was, I talked about my first uh, uh, opinion drafting for her, and uh, she gave it back to me with just the caption cut out, <laughs> and that's what she used. <laughs> so, that's rough. <laughs> well, she was just 
all over it. I mean, she mm-hmm. just knew the case law. She knew the doctrine. And I think you got a sense of that from her confirmation hearing where she was just like overwhelming avalanche of, you know, legal stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe I got the sense she worked a lot harder when she became a Supreme Court justice. But I just think she had the gig down. She definitely had a super close relationship with uh, Judge Silberman, who was right next door. Mm-hmm. She was very close with Justice Scalia during all that time. Um, and so she was just really at peace with her colleagues. And uh, she just she was doing jazzercise. <laughs> she, she even did jazzercise back then. And we would always, you know, the judge is going to jazzercise. So it was a great clerkship. I just don't feel like, you know, you couldn't say that I was uh, – an essential part of her judgeship. I'll put it that way. We used to talk about clothes. So what do you think of um, the whole, you know, phenomenon, the notorious RBG that she's become this sort of pop culture icon? Well, I've embraced it. I've bought all her stuff. I've got my (laughs) RBG. um, What's it called? The thing you uh, drink alcohol out of the uh, a wine glass? A flask. Oh, a, a flask. flask. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got RBG leggings, RBG pillow. Um, it's leggings? F- oh, yeah, they're hilarious. <laughs> I heart RBG. They're not flattering. <laughs> um, so the reason I like it is she's at a certain age where I just think you can get away with that. I think mm-hmm. if she were 40, it would be like, oh, come on. But she's been around for a long time. And yeah. if people want to, she deserves to be held up as an icon. She's done a lot for you know, women's civil rights. She's been an inspiration to so many law clerks. Um, and she's, she's been a, a very much an inspiration to me. So I actually, I love it. And it's fun. I mean, mm-hmm. she's this very petite lady who's really into lovely clothes and beautiful jewelry. And, you know, she's being compared to a famous rap artist who was assassinated. So it's, uh, it's definitely, it's got a humor. And in these times, that kind of humor, I just think it's funny. And I, I hope, I think the other justices are amused by it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So we have one final question, a question we ask all of our guests on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Uh, I hope this doesn't surprise you. I think I would pick Justice Alito. And I would let him talk about whatever he wanted. I would just... uh, Which would likely be baseball. (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't like baseball. That's unfortunate. I would tell him no baseball. No, I'd like to hear anything about the law. He brings this quiet passion to his cases. Um, I love his opinions. I love his writing. And he's got a courage about him and a sense of right and wrong that I just find very admirable. And I would would love to... uh, I'd love to just listen to what he has to say. Yeah, he's, I think... Definitely one of the best writers on the court right now. Love his writing. Yeah, and he's just he's just got something special. And not now that I agree with you know all of his decisions, yeah. and uh, he's a little bit pro government on criminal rights for me. But you know what? He just I like his passion. I like his uh, I like his energy and his opinions. Well, I think that would definitely be an interesting conversation to have. Uh, well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely. This has been fun. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, where I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. Oh, no. Are you ready? I guess. Okay, first question. When the court meets for conference, where do the chief justice and the senior associate justice sit? I have no idea, but if since you phrased the question that way, I'm guessing they sit at the ends of the table. That That is correct. <laughs> uh, and the junior justice, as we know, sits closest to the door. That makes sense. <laughs> Second question. Which current justices clerked at the Supreme Court earlier in their careers? Oh, well, definitely Justice Gorsuch. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think Justice Kennedy did as well. No? Uh, you're grimacing at me. <laughs> um, okay, not Kennedy. Um, Kagan did. Mm-hmm. Um, she clerked for Justice Marshall. Uh, I assume Roberts did. Bonus points if you know who he clerked for. Um, Rehnquist. Yes. And Thomas didn't. That's correct. Sotomayor didn't. That's correct. Breyer probably did, but I don't know who he clerked for. He did. He clerked for Arthur Goldberg. Okay. Yeah. And anybody else? Ginsburg. Uh, I don't know if she clerked on the Supreme Court. I think, no, she did. Didn't she? She did not. Well, you, you got them all, and then you added some to it. Oh, okay. uh, so Ginsburg applied for a clerkship with Felix Frankfurter, but he apparently turned her down. Ooh. And Justice Alito applied to clerk for Byron White, who hired Neil Gorsuch, uh, but Alito apparently was not hired either. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Third question. What item is placed at counsel's table in the courtroom before each argument? Um, maybe a bottle of water? That would be nice. I don't know if they do that, but this is a little more of a tradition. Is it like a gift or is it like a note that like directs I'm talking them? more like a gift, I guess. Oh, I have no idea. A quill. Oh. It's a 10 a 10 inch white quill that each advocate gets. Interesting. Fourth question. In what city did the court hold its very first session? Um I think somewhere in the northeast. Yes. Not too far northeast. Like Philadelphia? A little bit further north. New York? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, the court held its first session in February 1790 at the Royal Exchange Building in New York City. Final question. I'm ready. How many pairs of relatives have served on the Supreme Court? And bonus points if you can name any of them. Relatives. I know there's been a few, but I don't. I'm going to say two pairs. And there's one, and I can't remember their name. They have, like, the exact same name. Mm -hmm. Is it Harlan? Yes. John Marshall Harlan. And 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 John Marshall Harlan. His grandson, John Marshall Harlan. (laughs) That's the only one I know. Uh, Stephen Field and his nephew, David Brewer, who we talked about last week. I thought they were related. And then uh, the final one, <laughs> Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar, <laughs> and his distant relative, I believe, Wikipedia says they were cousins, but the book where I got this trivia question said that they were distantly related. Uh, Joseph Lamar oh, was related to Lucius Quintus I've Cincinnatus. I've never even heard of Joseph Lamar, so <laughs> I'll have to look him up. Yeah. Well, I think you did a pretty good job. These were tough questions. Yeah, they were uh, good. So good job, Tiffany. So thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.